Hi, good afternoon. My name is Nathan Cole. I'm a director with Kenny and Sam's. I'm going to be the moderator for today's presentation on the fundamentals of liability and property insurance. In my practice at Kenny and Sam's, I work a lot with construction companies and businesses. And while I don't primarily focus on insurance coverage, the ability to look at insurance policies, understand the policies enough to be able to interact with your clients, uh, the carriers themselves and other attorneys is really helpful. It's been a big part of my career. And so today we thought would be a good opportunity for some of the junior practitioners or people that are more experienced, but maybe don't have a lot of experience reviewing insurance policies to hear from some of our experts on the panel with me today to talk about how to look at these insurance policies, certain issues you wanna be aware of as you're going over various insurance policies, and then just different uh, nuts and bolts, uh, pitfalls for the unwary, and generally discussions about our experience so that you can use uh, litigating these issues and reading these policies to better be able to understand the issues as they come up for you to advise clients, and just to start to think about how you understand policies to ask the right questions. So we'll get into that in just a bit. I wanna quickly introduce uh, the panelists for today's presentation. Michelle Detheridge is an attorney with the Boston office of Robbins Kaplan. Michelle's an insurance coverage consultant to insurers throughout the country and to Europe. She represents her clients in large loss litigation. Uh, and prior to joining the firm, Michelle spent five years as an in-house trial attorney for Travelers Indemnity Company. So Michelle's worked for a carrier as well. Uh, you'll also hear today from John O'Neill, John's a partner with Sugarman Rogers. He focuses his practice on insurance, business disputes, and professional liability defense. John regularly advises and represents insurers in both coverage and bad faith actions throughout the US. He's a director of the Massachusetts Insurance and Reinsurance Bar Association. And John's gonna be presenting today on professional liability policies. And lastly, uh, Jennifer Sheehan is a director at Hamill, Marson, Dunn, Reardon and Shea. Uh, Jen graduated from Smith College. She was then a clerk for the Mass Appeals Court after law school. Uh, she's a director with her firm and she focuses her practice on insurance coverage and appellate work in addition to general uh, liability litigation. So we're gonna start again with Michelle. Michelle's gonna talk about commercial general liability policies, CGL policies. Uh, gonna go over some of the basics, how to review it, how to read it, what to be looking for, and then some of the, the dangers that you will typically encounter but we wanna to start to think about what do you need to do when you first get a potential claim or an issue with one of your clients? And is it something that is insured? And how do you proceed from there? John will then talk about professional liability policies, which are different from commercial general liability, but there's a lot of interplay between the two policies. Uh, and so John will, will take it from there once we're done with hearing from Michelle and her presentation. And then Jennifer is gonna come in and talk about um, property policies and how insurance and uh, insurance on, on particular real estate uh, is impacted. You'll see a lot of similarities and the way to look at these policies, but you're gonna see some important distinctions as well. Uh, there is a Q&A section, which you can notice in the bottom of your frame. Feel free to, to ask us questions. I'll be reviewing the questions. And while we wanna give the panelists an opportunity to do their presentation so we can hear from them, I'll be able to interject. So feel free to, to put the question and I'll take a look at it. We'll try and save time for the end so that we can also have some back and forth. Uh, but you know, the idea is let's have a discussion, hear from really talented people that have expertise in the area and we'll go from there. So we'll keep it to an hour. I'll make sure that we uh, stay on, on the pace that we need to and we will wrap it up so we, we know folks uh, have things to do even though you're probably you know, stuck at home somewhere in your basement, but that's okay. Um, we wish we could see you in person. So I'll make the obligatory remark that uh, I look forward to these events once we're all back together but the Boston Bar Association is a great resource for these types of CLEs. And the Brown Bag Series, when we are actually grabbing lunch together is a lot more fun, but it's a good group. So uh, without further ado, we're gonna have Michelle kick it off with the discussion on CGLs. Thanks so much for the introduction, Nate. And thanks to everyone for joining us. Uh, you know, as Nate mentioned, we certainly love being able to do these in person, uh, especially because when discussing insurance, I certainly like to have the aid of the wonderful uh, spread of free snacks that the BBA usually provides. But I uh, will do my best to, to kind of uh, make CGL policies interesting even without that aid. Um, I am going to share my screen. Please bear with me a moment.
and hopefully, uh, Nate, is that, that popping up in the correct format? Looks good. Okay, great. Uh, so as Nate mentioned, you know, a, a commercial general liability policy is also known as a CGL policy. Uh, they're complex, and as I'm sure many of you realize, uh, their terms are often litigated. So I'll just be providing a general overview of some of the portions of the policy that are most often raised uh, in connection with CGL claims. Um, so first of all, you know, what's covered? So general liability insurance uh, provides coverage for claims made against a policyholder, usually a business, by third parties. Um, so in this case, we're not talking about claims made by, for instance, employees, um, and it doesn't pertain to the insured's own property. We'll, we'll get into to that later with Jennifer's presentation. Um, and then we're also looking at uh, the coverage which pays for damages. Also, uh, attorney's fees and court costs, unless otherwise excluded. So what are some examples? Uh, for instance, the type of covered property damage we would be looking at a contractor installing a new kitchen forgets to shut off the water and floods the room. The homeowner sues the contractor for the damage to their home. Or we have a slip and fall. Uh, a delivery person slips on a recently mopped floor in a grocery store and breaks his ankle. Uh, he sues the store owner for medical costs, lost wages, and other expenses. Or a product liability matter. A swing set distributor sells one of its products to a family which breaks, injuring the customer's child. The family sues the distributor for medical expenses, pain, and suffering. So looking at the first kind of major coverage, which is coverage A, bodily injury and property damage. So when looking at this type of coverage, please always review the declarations page. You'll often hear people refer to a deck page and that's what they're referring to. It's usually at the, the very beginning of the policy document. Uh, and that specifies the named insured, the policy period, the location of the premises involved and the policy limits and sublimits, all very critical when making a preliminary examination of a policy. Next, looking at the insuring agreement. So there are a number, number of conditions within coverage A's insuring agreement that must be satisfied before the potential for recovery under the policy exists. And so that would be the person or entity uh, causing the damage must be an insured. So the named insured, as I mentioned, uh, is listed in the declarations, but there's also an entire section entitled who is an insured, which outlines others who are also qualified as insureds. So think, for example, of a spouse uh, of an individual insured or the member of an insured LLC. There must also be bodily injury or property damage. The, in, the insured must also be legally obligated to pay. That legal obligation can arise from direct action or inaction of an insured, uh, vicarious liability, uh, or contractually assumed liability. Legal liability must also arise out of a suit. So it's usually defined as a proceeding, including arbitration and other alternative dispute proceedings. Uh, legal liability must also arise out of an occurrence. And uh, that comes, becomes very important, certainly, when interpreting the potential for coverage. So an occurrence is an accident including continuous or repeated exposure to substantially the same general harmful conditions. It's not always easy to determine the date of an occurrence. Sometimes the date of the act which causes the injury and the injury itself can occur on the same date or different dates. Um, for example, a tenant might, be exposed to asbestos, might have been exposed to asbestos in their family's apartment between 1960 and 1980. Then the individual could have been diagnosed with mesothelioma in 2010. So uh, in these types of claims, the courts can use one of the following legal theories to identify uh, when the injury occurred. So that would be the injury in fact theory, manifestation theory, exposure theory, continuous trigger theory. And also the bodily injury or property damage must occur during the policy period and the suit must seek monetary damages. A suit seeking only declaratory judgment generally won't be covered. Uh, the, cover, the occurrence must also take place in the occurrence territory and it must take place prior to the policy period. So no insured or employee authorized by the named insured can have received notice of any occurrence or claim or have known about the bodily injury or, or property damage had occurred. 
Um, and again, we'll see kind of a compare and contrast depending on the type of policy you're looking at, but that's specific to the CGL policy. And then also, um, you know, the CGL policy contains a series of definitions. So the insurers can define the terms to limit the coverage. So watch for any words that are in quotation marks. Um, so we went over the example of an occurrence, which is a defined term, uh, but also watch out for the endorsements. So those are something outside of that general CGL policy form. And those often contain definitions of key terms. Uh, for instance, sometimes they change the definition of an occurrence. So always make sure to read a full policy to see if there are any changes to any key definitions that might apply to a claim. Uh, and otherwise, the terms are just given their general, common, everyday meaning. Um, and sometimes you might find case law commenting on what that meaning might be. Next, moving on to exclusions, and we could spend a whole day on each of the individual exclusions that I'm about to go over, but since no one has a full day for this presentation, I'll just cover some of the, the kind of uh, regular characters very briefly. Michelle, um, before, before we jump into exclusions, can we just pause for a second? And So I think it's important that we, we start from the beginning and understanding that these policies are contracts, right? That's They're just an agreement between an insured in a carrier. And so as Michelle was just going through the coverage and the declarations page or the deck page, um, I think Michelle was, was pointing out that part of the policy, which is what you start with, it tells you what you have. It tells you what is potentially going to be covered by insurance if those different factors and situations are met. So just like any other contract, you're going to start by reviewing that first page, the declarations page, and you're going to look for issues with that. Do they have the information correct? And is that how you approach it, Michelle? If you were to sit down and start the process of reviewing this contract, of reviewing the policy to make a determination about potential issues, can you sort of walk through what your process is as you start reviewing it? And then you get to the point where, uh, where the exclusions come in, right? So the coverage and that part of the policy that gives, then we get through that and the exclusions take away. And so I think, Michelle, just as you can walk through sort of the process of how you sit down to go through these, these contracts, these policies, to make that initial evaluation of what would be, be covered. Absolutely, so I, I think you've made a lot of great points there, Nate, but as you mentioned, you know, first looking at the declarations, but also there will uh, be a list of forms and that's generally appended to that, that declarations page. And that will show you, you know, not only, uh, you always want to double check because I've received a number of policies throughout the years and reviewed them where you're not necessarily seeing all of the endorsements that are also included with the policy. And in some cases, those endorsements can you know, um, buy back or further limit coverage that's in that basic policy form. So you do wanna make sure that you have all of those forms. And again, you know, as I've mentioned before, and I'm sure we'll mention again before the end of this presentation, always read the entire policy and see how some of those um, some of those exclusions and endorsements might interact. And that's something to think about when looking at a claim. You know, sometimes you might say, oh, I saw, you know, an exclusion in the policy um, related to uh, employee-related injuries. However, you might, uh, your policyholder may have paid for additional employee coverage, and you might see that in a later endorsement. So again, just making sure to read that policy as a whole. How do you know if you have the whole policy? I, I know at times in my experience, I'll look at the declarations page and I'll start to read the coverage and I'll, I'll, I'll realize that I don't have the whole policy, but how is somebody that's more novice to this going to know whether they have all of those endorsements? And, and you mentioned that term, but maybe you can speak to where we will see or find the endorsements on a deck page for, for a particular policy. Uh, sure. So again, it's, it tends to be one of the, the pages that, that comes after, you know, kind of the base, more basics, the named insured, the amount of the premium, uh, the address, uh, the policy period, all of that basic information, that's where you tend to find it. However, I will say, depending on, you know, who sometimes the policies are passed back and forth between different individuals at maybe your client who's the insured's organization, um, don't, don't assume that that's where it's going to be. It could be anywhere in the policy, but I think it's always a best practice to just look for that list of forms and then just do the manual checkoff. And you know, even as somebody who's been doing it for years, 
I, I've sometimes gone to read a policy very quickly, gone back and realized, wow, I don't have this key endorsement. Sometimes it might have been added on later. Um, and that's why, you know, if somebody was just forwarding something that they received right when the policy incepted, they might not originally have it. So again, I would just say, make sure that you're reading and just seeing. So aside from this general CGL form that I'm primarily discussing today, do check and see if there are some of those additional documents and just go through that checklist. And if you don't have them, um, the insurance company can forward a complete copy of that policy. Yeah, I think that's, for me, that's the best approach to go directly to the carrier right. because oftentimes the client may not have the entire policy. Absolutely. The, the forms that we're talking about are actual forms that are created by an, an office that, that creates the document itself. It's in the ISO office. And so what you'll see on the declaration page is a reference to various forms and, and numbers. And those allow the practitioner to be able to determine what other documents are incorporated by the reference on the deck page. So you wanna make sure you have not only the full policy, but the referenced forms that are at the bottom of that deck page. And as Michelle pointed out, I think the best place to get it is directly from the carrier. Great, no, thank you, Nate. That's uh, got some important points, definitely, when, when making an initial review of an insurance policy. And so once you understand what coverage is there, Michelle, then you turn to exclusions. And, and can you tell us about what you do when you start to look for exclusions? Absolutely. Um, and so in the CGL form itself, there, there is a section that's specifically labeled exclusions. And again, kind of we see the, the cast of characters that tends to, to pop up pretty frequently. Um, but again, look at the whole policy and you never know if there's going to be a change in an endorsement or somewhere later on in the policy. But I'm just going to, uh, you know, cover a few of the the, the more general, I guess, exclusions that you might end up seeing. Um, first is one for expected or intended injury. And um, the basic concept there is just that bodily injury or property damage cannot be expected or intended from the standpoint of the insured. Um, so like thinking about when we were just discussing occurrences, uh, insurers generally, as, as one might expect, seek to cover only accidental conduct. Um, again, though, as, as you might see throughout the policies as well, there's an exception to this exclusion. So always be on the lookout for those. Um, and bodily injury resulting from the use of reasonable force to protect persons or property. So that's an exception to that exclusion and you might find coverage there. Uh, another one of the, the general exclusions is for liquor liability. Um, and the concept there is that there's no coverage for bodily injury or property damage for which an insured may be held liable by reason of causing or contributing to the intoxication of another, uh, furnishing, uh, furnishing alcoholic beverages to a person who is under the legal drinking age or under the influence of alcohol, um, and then also speaks to applicable laws containing the, uh, concerning the sale, gift, distribution, and use of alcoholic beverages. But this exclusion applies to insurers in the business of manufacturing, distributing, selling, serving, or furnishing alcoholic beverages. So uh, for an example, an insured bar oversees one of, overserves one of its patrons, the patron gets into their car and hits a pedestrian, that might not be covered. However, um, they, you also have options as an insured. You can always uh, speak to a carrier and determine whether um, there's an option to buy additional coverage. So for example, bar owners purchase liquor liability insurance. And then uh, there's also the exclusion for workers' compensation and similar laws uh, and employer liability. And um, not gonna go too far into this uh, since I know that we're, we have several presenters and I don't wanna infringe on other people's time. Um, but here, and also with, you know, an employer's liability exclusion, it's that the policy does not cover sums which an insured is required to pay under workers' comp or similar laws. Um, so if an insured employer fails to purchase workers' comp coverage and one of its employees is injured, the insurer would not cover the workers' compensation benefits. And again, that makes sense because the idea is that there's a different type of insurance that would be providing coverage. And then also as to employers liabilities. So there's no coverage for bodily injury to an employee of an insured arising out of and in the course of employment by the insured or performing duties related to the conduct of the insured's business. Uh, and then there are also some language about uh, bodily injury to an employee's family member. 
so for example, uh, you have two grocery store employees return to an insured market on their day off. Employee number one is there solely to buy food. Employee number two is there to pick up her schedule. So the exclusion may apply to employee number two, but would not necessarily apply to employee number one. So definitely different ways of looking at a situation where you think, okay, so this is an employee, there's definitely coverage. But again, read deep, more deeply into these, um, these provisions and exclusions um, because you might find an exception there. Well, the takeaway, Michelle, is really the, the devil is in the details for this, this language. I mean, it, it makes a huge difference. And so you have to pour over this language and figure out whether these exclusions are applicable to a very specific fact pattern. Is that fair? That is absolutely fair. And I may or may not have written that quote later in the presentation. So I'll take that, it. That's where it's in my head. So I'm sorry I stole it from you. <laughs> not at all. <laughs> it just underscores the fact that it is absolutely true. And we see it time and time again. Uh, again, you can go over this pretty quickly. Um, so there's an exclusion for aircraft, auto, or watercraft. So no coverage for bodily injury or property damage arising out of ownership, maintenance, use, or entrustment to others of any aircraft, auto, or watercraft owned or operated by or rented or loaned to an insured. Again, the expectation is that an insured is going to purchase separate policies to cover these items. Um, and I know that most of us have probably had a at an auto policy at one point or another. Though I've lived in a city for so long, it's been about 10 years for me, I think. Um, and there are various exceptions to that exclusion. Um, and that's including when a watercraft is ashore on premises you rent or you own. So again, a lot of exceptions that you need to look at and really think, what, what is the exact situation I'm looking at? Might this exception apply? Also, uh, the exclusion for damage to property. So no coverage for property damage to property owned, rented to, or occupied by the named insured. And again, we're gonna be hearing more about the first party property policies from Jennifer later. And the idea is again, you're going to have a different type of coverage for that sort of damage. Um, there are a number of other types of exclusions, but I'll move on to coverage B, which is personal and advertising injury. Um, and so that's uh, the coverage for personal and advertising injury. You're looking at a defined policy term. Um, and so this protects an insured against liability arising out of certain offenses. Um, as you can see, that they include uh, false arrest, malicious, malicious prosecution, libel, slander, um, an insured's use of another's advertising idea in their own advertising and copyright infringement. Uh, there are a number of exclusions. Again, uh, that's a term that you're going to see pop up uh, quite frequently, I think, through all of our presentations, um, but that's knowing violation of rights of another, material published with knowledge of falsity, material published prior to the policy period, um, criminal acts, quality or performance goods, failure to conform to statements, um, and the wrong description of prices. Um, I know I'm running up on time a little bit, so I won't go too far into the details of those exclusions. But again, just thinking, you know, okay, so I might normally think that this, you know, the claim might fall within this personal and advertising definition. However, again, looking at all of those exclusions at specific circumstances where that would not be the case. Don't need to go too far into coverage for medical payments. Simply know that this is limited coverage for medical payments for a person injured or killed on an insured's premises or because of an insured's business operations. Um, that's to allow for prompt settlement of small claims without litigation. There are a number of policy conditions. Again, the standard conditions relating to bankruptcy, premiums, renewals, et cetera, and your duties in the event of an occurrence as an insured. So that's think about notification requirements, that sort of thing. So Michelle, let me, let me try and uh, I think bring some of what you've said together, which I think is really helpful to understand from a, a, a fundamentals approach to how you're gonna read this stuff. The CGL policy, it's there to provide insurance and defense. And we'll, we'll get into the cost of defense aspect of these policies, but it's there if in the course of your business, you either hurt someone or you cause property damage. It's an insurance policy, like a CGL policy, it's not there to pay if your work is allegedly bad, if you have to replace your bad work. It's there if your bad work causes personal injury or causes property damage 
Uh, and there's lots of litigation about exactly what that what constitutes property damage. And then as Michelle went through, that lays out the basic coverage. And there's these other parts of the policies that you have to be mindful of where things like libel or defamation may be covered. And so when you when you first evaluate the claim, you want to look at the policy and scramble through that, go through it with a fine tooth cone and see if there's a potential avenue here to have covered. Uh, you may only have one part of a claim brought against your client covered, but that may be enough to trigger a defense for all claims. Uh, and so that's a CGL policy in a nutshell. It's property damage, it's personal injury, subject to all these endorsements and exclusions that are different with, with each policy to some degree. But Michelle's done a really good job of giving us a summary of a typical CGL policy. And I guess after Michelle wraps up with her final thoughts, I'd be curious to hear from John about how a professional liability policy differs from the CGL that's providing coverage for, for injuries and for property damage caused by your work. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Nate. And again, because I'm at time, I think I'm going to you know, skip over the duty to uh, defend and indemnify. But again, just expect variations between different policies and always read the entire policy. If there's one takeaway from this presentation, that would be it. And thank you so much for your time. Thanks. So John, picking up from where Michelle just left off, and there's going to be some overlap because the approach to reviewing these policies that Michelle described I think is the, is the protocol that we want to use for, for all of the policies that we sit down with. But how are professional liability policies different from CGL policies? Thanks, Nate. Uh, so there are some significant differences. I'm going to try and cover them in sort of big picture terms. Um, you know, if I could sort of give you a couple of takeaways. Uh, you know, I'm gonna go through a lot of, of different material, but if I can give you the sort of the, the two big takeaways in terms of the differences between general liability and professional liability policies, it's the underwriting basis and the scope of coverage. And, and actually out of these two, the easier one to talk about is the scope of coverage, uh, but I'm gonna dive into the underwriting basis first. Um, so Michelle talked about general liability policies and they, uh, are written on what's called an occurrence basis. And they provide coverage for bodily injury or property damage uh, that is caused by an occurrence, an, an accident, if you will. Um, and it, it provides coverage for, for bodily injury and property damage during the effective period of the policy. So it doesn't matter when the claim is made as long as the property damage or the bodily injury occurs during the effective period of the policy, there's coverage for it under that particular policy. Uh, and what that leads to it, and Michelle alluded to this as well, is what we call long-term or long-tail liabilities, where an insurance company can find itself uh, on the hook, so to speak, to provide coverage for claims uh, involving accidents or conduct that may have occurred decades before. Uh, and sort of the, the most common examples of this would be environmental liability, where an insurance conduct in, say, maybe the 1950s or 60s may give rise to liabilities 20 or 30 or even 40 years later uh, based on newly enacted environmental liability statutes. Um, that's one example. Asbestos exposure that doesn't manifest itself in, in harm to the, to the claimant until several decades later. Uh, and then there's also uh, sexual, sexual abuse claims where uh, either because of repressed memory or for other reasons, you know, they, they don't come to light until several decades later. So that's the, this is talking about occurrence-based policies. Claims, uh, professional liability policies are written on a claims made and reported basis. It's an entirely different way of, of conceptualizing and, and um, uh, sort of delineating coverage. And, and we're talking here uh, as Nate alluded to, sort of the, the grant of coverage under the policy. We'll get to exclusions later, but this is how the scope of coverage is, is defined in terms of what coverage is provided. So under a claims made and reported policy, you have to have two events happen in order for there to be coverage for, for the claim. Now, the claim has to be both first asserted by the claimant during the policy period or the effective period of the policy, and it also has to be reported by the insured to the insurer during the policy period. If either one of those is missing, then there's not going to be coverage under the grant of coverage or the insuring agreement of the policy. Uh, and basically what that, what that means is when you buy a professional liability policy or a claims made and reported policy, you're only covered for the period during which the, the policy is in effect. 
Uh, and once the policy expires, your coverage expires unless you replace it with a new policy. Uh, so let me move on, uh, let me show you an example of a claims made and reported insuring agreement. And I, I think you should be able to see my cursor, uh, but this is basically the grant of coverage in the upper left-hand corner. It says we'll pay damages, which you become legally obligated to pay in claims expense as a result of claims first made against you and reported to us in writing during the policy period or an extended reporting period. That's the typical language used to, to create claims made and reported coverage. And that's what you should be looking at if you're looking at a professional liability policy to see if it's written on that basis or if the language more resembles an occurrence policy, which is the type of policy that, that uh, Michelle was talking about before. Um, so claims made and reported coverage is oftentimes referred to as claims made just to shorten it. Um, the critical thing to remember with this is that you need to have uh, that an insured who's, who receives a claim under this type of policy needs to report it before their policy expires. The claim has to be both made and reported to the insurer before the policy expires or there will not be coverage. So even if you place coverage with the same insurer, you renew coverage with the same insurer and you get another claims made and reported policy in the next year, there won't be coverage under that second policy if you wait to report it during that second policy period. Um, so say you have you know, policy A in 2020 and policy B in 2021. If you get a claim during uh, policy A, during the period of policy A, it needs to be reported before that policy expires. If it's not reported during that policy period, it will be have been made, first made during policy A, but it won't be reported during policy A and it won't qualify for coverage under that policy. And sort of conversely, if you report it during policy period B, that satisfies the reporting side of, of the insuring agreement, but the claim was not first made during that policy period. Uh, and I know this is a little bit confusing and so, sort of counterintuitive um, because you know people typically think that if you have insurance covering you for 20 years with the same insurer, you should be covered regardless of when you uh, report a claim. It, it's very different under uh, claims made and reported policies. So. Michelle mentioned notice reporting, uh, notice requirements in an occurrence-based policy. It's important not to confuse those with reporting requirements under a claims made and reported policy. The two are not the same. So in an occurrence-based policy, if you're late reporting something to the insurer, it's usually not a big deal. The insurance company has to show that their defense of the claim was, was prejudiced in some way, and that's pretty hard for an insurance company to do. Um, in a claims made context, the insurance company does not have to show prejudice and you're probably not gonna be covered if you fail to report it during the same policy period in which it's first asserted. John, so, so can I, I, I wanna jump in here for a second. So with a CGL policy, I think when you let the carrier know, it's a little bit more forgiving in terms of whether ultimately the carrier will be able to push back based on what it calls late notice, right? right? They're, they're gonna to have to establish that they, they, were, they were prejudiced. And so I think to the extent that you're actively defending the case and putting the carrier in essentially the same position it would have been in had it been put on notice and involved from the beginning, you've got a strong argument. But a much more draconian result when you're talking about a professional liability policy in terms of when you put that claim in. When you get a question from a client about a potential claim and they're not sure if it's going to result in litigation and they're going to need their insurance and you're not quite sure, what are, what are the panelists' approach toward making the determination about whether to put that carrier on notice and how to advise a client. Because I know I often get questions from clients saying, well, how's it gonna affect my insurance? And my response is typically, you buy insurance for this moment. And if you take the chance that you wanna try and save a little bit because you think you'll keep the premium lower by not reporting it, it's really important, I think, to let the client know the downside of that. But how do you all approach it when you get that question about whether it should be right. so to the carrier? So let me jump in first, and if others want to jump in after me, please feel free. Um, I always follow your your route. I tell them you should be reporting things. If you have any question about it, you should report it, uh, especially under professional liability policies. But you know, generally, my experience with insurers is, if it turns out to be not a claim, if it turns out to not be something where the insurance company is actually paying money on it, it usually does not affect rates, and and certainly. You know, that's a, a very broad statement and there are exceptions, but 
Um, I always strongly advise people to uh, report under any type of policy, but particularly with a claims made and reported policy, it's critical that you do so uh, because that claim could turn into a much bigger deal if you're you know, uncertain about it or, or it could turn into a claim and you could void your coverage if you don't report it within the same policy period in which it was first asserted. Um, does anybody else want to jump in or should I just carry on? Okay, all right, I'll keep going. Uh, so this is a, a Massachusetts decision and I'm, I'm gonna just very briefly summarize this. Uh, in Massachusetts, there was a case involving claims made and reported policies. It's the Charles T. Main decision. This case is sort of cited around the country. There's a couple of sort of seminal cases and this is actually one of them. Uh, and in this case, the, the Supreme Judicial Court distinguished between the two types of notice and reporting requirements that I just mentioned. Uh, and it said that um, you really don't need you know, while you need to show prejudice if you're an insurer to disclaim coverage under a notice provision in an occurrence-based policy, that's not the case with respect to claims made and reported pol uh, policies. The reporting requirement stands and is enforced as written uh, regardless of whether there's any prejudice to the insurer or not. And, and the court noted that it's really fairness and rate setting was the purpose of that reporting requirement in a claims made policy. Uh, and it's different sort of in, in kind from the types of notice requirements that are seen in occurrence policies. Um, so that's the general rule, not only in Massachusetts, but in all jurisdictions. Uh, there's two or three jurisdictions that have a very distinct minority. And, and I'll add that it's a very highly criticized uh, position to be in the minority. The other jurisdictions, the majority view, sort of very critical of the minority uh, view on, the, on reporting requirements. Um, so why do they write policies on a claims made basis? And the answer probably to nobody's surprise is that it reduces risk and reduces cost. Uh, when an insurance company um, writes on a claims made basis, they know that when that pilot policy expires, they are done with that period. They don't have any risk on it. There's no claims. Um, they can sort of close their books and move forward. Um, when you have occurrence-based coverage, you could be facing claims many decades later for those policies. Uh, the reduced risk re translates into reduced cost, and that allows them to offer policies at a much lower price. And that's another reason why they're enforced as written. Um, and for most professionals, it really wouldn't be cost-effective to uh, procure insurance on an occurrence basis. It's just not a way that's, that is feasible in terms of the amount of risk that the insurer is taking on and the, the price that they would have to charge. <coughs> Excuse me. Uh, so the classic cases for delayed reporting, this is what I've seen. A lot of this is sort of anecdotal, but um, we do see it quite a bit in these policies and it is a high, uh, an often litigated issue. Um, you know, what do we see? We see insureds seeing that the claim against them is meritless and that they can self-defend. And that's obviously lawyers who are doing that if they're self-defending. Uh, what happens is they get a claim, they think it's meritless and they litigate it for a couple of years. And then when they can't get it thrown out on summary judgment and it's going to trial, um, they sort of get nervous and, and think about what a trial is gonna look like if they're defending themselves. They turn to their insurer and unfortunately for them, it's too late. Um, in other contexts, uh, people don't recognize that what they've received is actually considered a claim under their insurance policy, or they get a very small claim that they don't think is gonna ever become anything. You know, it's sort of like, oh, we can take care of this ourselves uh, and they may even pay it. Um, but if, if that becomes a larger claim that's related, uh, it could cause problems for them down the road. Uh, and then sort of the worst case scenario is when one member of a firm is hiding a claim that they've received from the other members of their firm. And that also leads to uh, reporting violations, if you will. John, one question that just popped up from the audience, which uh, I think you just touched on, is uh, when to report uh, alleged violations uh, of, of attorney conduct. So somebody, say opposing counsel or another party threatens a Rule 11 violation. Is that the kind of thing we, we talked about sort of erring on the side of reporting? Uh, I guess that doesn't mean you just report any and, and every potential, you know, allegation against you. So if you had a situation under an, uh, an attorney E&O policy um, where you've got to make that determination about what sort of alleged conduct rises to the level that you want to put a carrier on notice, is, is some sort of email shot over from the opposing lawyer that that filing is a Rule 11 violation? Is that the kind of thing that you would, you would say would rise to the level 
of reporting to a carrier or or not? You know, it, it's always uh, a difficult call to make for something like that, and and without knowing a, a, the, the the context in which it's sent, and without knowing the specifics of it, it's hard to say. I would err on the side of reporting it, uh, and specifically for attorneys because their policies also typically provide coverage for um, BBO inquiries, uh, you know, bar, bar investigations. And if it turns into something like that, you wanna make sure that you report it early. Uh, I can understand the reluctance to, to, to report something like that because it sort of reflects poorly on the, on the insured. Um, but I think most carriers recognize that these things happen and that allegations like that, you know, doesn't mean that there's any merit to the allegation. Uh, I would wanna report that if I were in that, if I found myself in that situation. Sure. And as a practice pointer, I guess what, what I would say and what we tell junior attorneys that are working for us is, first of all, if you get that kind of allegation, don't respond and don't bury your head in the sand. You know, bring it to management, to the partner that's involved so that you can sit down and evaluate the legitimacy of the, the allegation and take the additional steps to make sure whether the, the firm wants to get uh, the you know, carrier involved. I don't think you ignore it, but I'm also very careful when those sorts of allegations come my way that I'm not just immediately firing off a response and, and you know, think it through, evaluate it, and then decide with your firm uh, or with your partners or, or, or with the, the managing partner that you're reporting to, how to best respond. Because how you respond and what you say from that point going forward, it's not just important, obviously, in terms of uh, potentially having to defend that claim down the road, but you really wanna think through whether it is the kind of thing you need to get a carrier involved with and when. Right. And, and I haven't said this before, but, you know, another resource for these sorts of issues is to turn to your broker. You know, they are really experts in this, this sort of thing, and they can give you oftentimes a better sense than I would be able to give you in, in the context of this presentation, um, you know, some more specifics as to whether you should or shouldn't be reporting it. A, a lot of them may have their own claims group or, or people that advocate for coverage. Uh, and they can be a real resource in these sorts of situations. So that would be the first place that I would turn if I had a question. Um, but I would also, you know, want to think about it myself and with my my uh, partners or, or managing partner as well. Um, so let me just jump over to the other issue that I had uh, sort of flagged at the beginning or the other topic, which is uh, professional services. You know, what constitutes professional services? And this really speaks to the issue of the scope of coverage under a professional liability policy. Not surprisingly, they want to insure against claims involving professional services and not general liability claims. Uh, but as we'll see shortly, that can be kind of a difficult line to draw. Um, you know, most general liability policies uh, will exclude coverage for professional liability. And conversely, um, you know, as I mentioned, the professional liability policies want to limit their coverage to that. Um, so they'll typically contain a definition of professional services and require that the claim arise out of professional services. And it's often, you know, something that's defined in the policy and courts have also attempted to articulate a def definition. There's a decision in Massachusetts that talks about this and that's the Roe versus Federal Insurance Company decision. Uh, and, you know, not surprisingly, a professional service is something that involves intellectual skill uh, and, you know, typically what they're getting at is something that involves individualized services uh, and that's predominantly sort of mental or intellectual as, a as opposed to physical or manual. Uh, and, you know, the court goes on to say that you should look at the character of the act itself rather than the title of the person performing it, which is sort of an acknowledgement that most professionals have people on staff who may not be a licensed professional, uh, but they are part and parcel of the services that are provided by the firm as a whole. Um, and I'm going to try and go through these next few slides quickly so that we can uh, cover one last topic. And Nate, stop me if I go too far here um, in terms of time. So, um, you know, you, you run into these cases where it's tough to distinguish between general liability claims and professional liability claims. And this happens a lot in the design and, and engineering uh, context. There's a decision in Massachusetts that involved Camp Dresser McKee, which is an engineering firm, and they have been hired to design and oversee the operation of a wastewater treatment plant. A worker was hurt there due to an unguarded conveyor belt, made a claim against the, against the firm. And the court found, you know, I guess what happened was the, uh, the, the firm tendered it to its professional liability insurer and its general liability insurer, and they both sort of pointed the finger at the other and said, not me, it's, it's their, their claim to deal with. Uh, but the court found that the general liability insurance policy was the one that should be responding. Uh, and they said at the end, you know, the allegations were more in the nature of safety precautions 
uh, and failure to warn didn't really involve professional services. So it wasn't something that fell within the, the professional liability policy. But, you know, that's kind of a tough line to draw. Uh, and you find cases that really come to what seems to be a very different result on somewhat similar facts. Uh, and there's a decision from Mississippi involving another engineering firm, uh, and they had been hired to provide geotechnical services, and they failed to call Mississippi Dig uh, before the contractor began work. And as you may know, those sorts of organizations, they sort of come out and they'll tell you where you can and can't dig so that you don't um, you know, cause damage to any underground uh, utilities. Uh, so the engineer failed to contact Mississippi Dig, and lo and behold, the contractor started digging and uh, you know, they, they hit an underground pipe that ruptured and caused an explosion. And the court found that the failure to contact Mississippi Dig was sort of part and parcel of the engineering services to be provided uh, and was a professional service uh, and sort of a difficult decision to reconcile with Camp Dresser and McKee. Um, you know, everybody is required to contact organizations like Mississippi Dig. You don't have to be an engineer. Everybody, you know, if any of us started a, a project in our, our yard that required digging, we would be obligated to contact uh, I think it's, uh, I forget what it is, it's dig safe in Massachusetts. So hard to reconcile these decisions. And it really just goes to show that these can be a tough, tough distinction to make. Um, so where you're not certain whether it's one or the other, best to put both carriers on notice and let them, you know, sort of fight it out. John, we, we've spent some time talking about that, the decision to put in a claim, whether it's to your own, you know, carrier on behalf of a client. Uh, but I think you just touched on an important point, which is oftentimes, it's not just a matter of do you put a carrier on notice, but that you've got to look at all of the policies. And when you're representing more sophisticated businesses that have multiple policies that could potentially be in play, it's so critical to put the appropriate carriers on notice. And, I, and before we transition over to Jennifer's uh, presentation on, on property policies, I'd be curious whether the panel has ever experienced a situation where the, the carriers are pointing the finger at one another the CGL carrier saying this is a professional liability claim. Professional liability claim is pointing the finger back at, at the CGL carrier. And my question is to the group, do you ever recommend that clients buy insurance from the same carrier for these various types of policies? Do you think that makes any difference or makes it harder for them to point the finger? Or does it ultimately just matter what the actual claim is and the facts and the policy language itself? So in my experience, um, um, the answer is no, I, I don't recommend that. I, that's something that brokers may, may or may not uh, make a recommendation of. A lot of times uh, the policies, professional liability policies are written by entirely different arms of the same com company. So it's almost like a separate company anyway. Uh, they don't wanna have the claim on their books, so to speak. So the fact that it's all under say, uh, you know, a Liberty Mutual or a Travelers or, or uh, con uh, CNA, you know, doesn't really matter uh, because they're very different branches of the company. Um, but I do recommend that if there's any question about whether there's coverage under a policy, just to go ahead and put everybody on notice. And I will tell you that uh, it has paid dividends in several instances where, you know, a, a general liability policy and a professional liability policy have both contributed together to take care of a claim for an insured client. Uh, and it's worked out to their benefit. So I think if you're, you know, as with whether or not to report at all, if you have any question about it, you probably should be putting as many on notice as you can. Great, thanks, John. So we've now heard from Michelle that's walked us through the basics of a CGL policy. When a company is out performing services and, and maybe it's work causes property damage or personal injury. John talked about when an entity is performing professional services and how important it is to distinguish between when they're alleged to have done something that's caused harm, whether that was in furtherance of, of professional services, of them using professional judgment. Another situation we're gonna jump into now with Jennifer is policies that provide insurance for, for property and how that interplay works with these different scenarios that we've talked about. Jennifer's gonna jump in and walk us through that and talk about when those policies step in and provide coverage. Okay, thanks so much, Nate. Um, so property insurance, um, is basically focused on covering, again, it's for the insured party, it's not for a third party, and it has, it's going to cover physical loss or damage to a building uh, or in the contents of that building and 
loss of increase, loss of income or increase in expenses resulting from the inability to use the damaged property. Um, what's not covered, so a, a commercial property coverage is gonna be part of a larger program and it doesn't cover a lot. There are a lot of things that it doesn't cover. So for an example, employee theft, equipment breakdown, um, active construction projects, or uh, transit unscheduled um, property, which you would have to buy separate coverages. So your standard property coverage form is not going to cover those things. And you would have to, if they were applicable to your business, you would need to buy that additional coverage. Um, there's kind of a standard form and then the manuscript forms, which kind of go back to what Michelle was talking about, the list of forms that are included in a policy. Um, those are going to be things that are unique to that policy. They're not a standard part of every policy and you would have to review that list of forms to make sure that, to see exactly what your coverages are. Um, and these are the kinds of, this is kind of how the policies are set up. There's the common uh, policy conditions, which are have to do a lot of times with cancellation or the insurer's right to inspection, different kinds of things that are just going to apply to anything that's covered under it. Um, there's also the, the specific coverage forms. Cause of loss has to do with the um, kinds of, of uh, damage and the causes of that damage that will be covered by the policy. And then you can have endorsements, which put in or take away certain kinds of coverage. So for example, um, earthquake, you know, not necessarily covered under the standard policy, but you may have an endorsement if you're in an earthquake prone area that's gonna um, cover that for you. So the basic requirements that are gonna trigger coverage are there has to be direct physical damage. It has to be to property that is specifically covered by that policy. The loss has to be at a location that's covered by the policy, and that's within the coverage territory. It has to be the result of a cause of loss that's covered, and it has to occur within the policy period. And one of the things that's uh, going to be the source of a lot of litigation going forward, it already has been, has to do, you know, we talked about that, the, that uh, loss of business income is something that's covered under a, a property policy. But with all the COVID-19 um, stuff that's been going on for the past year, there's going to be a lot of litigation whether COVID-based claims are covered under property insurance. And there was a recent um, Superior Court decision, the Vervine Corporation versus Strathmore Insurance. And I'm just going to quickly go over it because it talks about a couple of really key issues that are, are going to be central in these COVID cases. So the plaintiffs were um, a corporate, corporations that ran three different restaurants, uh, Kappa, Toro, and Little Donkey, all in the Boston area. And the defendants were the their property insurers. And the insurers moved to dismiss the case, the claim on the ground that the plaintiff's losses were not covered under the policies. And the court ultimately did with, agree with them and dismissed the complaint. And the basis of the complaint was that uh, because of the COVID orders that were um, implemented by Governor Baker in throughout last year, they were unable to fully operate their businesses and as a result lost income and were seeking that uh, coverage under their um, the business income coverage of their policies. And just to go over really quickly, on, on March 15, 2020, Governor Baker um, prohibited gatherings of more than 25 people and also prohibited restaurants from um, serving food and drink that's gonna be consumed on the premises. And they were, restaurants were still allowed to be open for takeout, but, you, but customers couldn't eat there. On June 6th, there was a, a revised order which allowed restaurants to serve patrons on the premises outdoors. And then, um, on June 22nd, restaurants were allowed to uh, resume indoor um, service of customers. So under the policies, the business income coverage stated that, and, and as Michelle said, and, and as John touched on as well, you really have to look at every word of the policy, the policy language because 
buried within this paragraph are about nine different conditions that have to be met in order for there to be coverage. So we will pay for the actual loss of business income you sustain due to the necessary suspension of your operations during the period of restoration. And all of those uh, phrases and quotes are defined by the policy. The suspension must be caused by direct physical loss of or damage to property at a premises described in the declarations and for which a business income limit of insurance is shown in the declarations and the loss or damage must be caused by or result from a covered cause of loss. So there's a lot of different conditions that have to be met there before there will be any coverage. Um, similar, similarly, the policies also had what was called an extra, extra expense provision, which would cover the necessary expenses you incur during the period of restoration, again, a, a phrase defined by the policy, that you would not have incurred if there had not been physical, had been not been the direct physical loss or damage to the property caused by a covered cause of loss. In addition, the um, plaintiffs were also seeking coverage under what's called the civil authority provision, which has to do with um, loss of business income and, ex and extra expenses incurred caused by action of civil authority that prohibits access to the described property. And both of these, the following conditions must, must apply. So you have to look, you know, the, if it was or, they might only have to meet one of the conditions, but because it says and, both of those conditions must be present. So in this case, um, the defendants were arguing that direct physical loss um, just, it only means that the physical state of the property was altered. And if that, if that occurs, that they should be covered, covered for the loss of business income that happened during that time. I'm sorry, that, that's the, the defendant's argument. And the plaintiff's argument was saying that their limitations on access to and the use of property was enough, and that would constitute direct physical loss. Um, and the court, as I said, agreed with the defendants and saying that basically the properties were intact and unchanged the entire time during the, 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 the time of the uh, Governor Baker's orders. And even though they could not be used in the same way, they were missing that component of direct physical loss that would allow for coverage. And in the, the one of the great things about this decision is that it, it kind of takes you through how a court will interpret an insurance policy. And so, um, the word fit, they talk about direct physical loss, but that the word physical is not defined by the policy. So the court just talks about what the usual meaning of that term is and um, basically says that, the, that it has to affect the, the, the property itself. It's not going to talk about an intangible loss like what we have here where the, the restaurant was fine, but it couldn't be used in the way that it was normally used. And that just was not enough to, to be a physical loss in order to recover under the policy. And um, that interpretation squares with how courts all over the country are viewing these claims, where they're just saying that the government order, even though it limits your use of your property, it's not a physical loss for the purpose of, this, of these kinds of policies. And the plaintiffs argued that the phrase direct physical loss was ambiguous. And the reason that it's important that, it, it, that a term might be ambiguous is that the court can look at things, at information and evidence outside of the policy. But if it's not ambiguous, you have to just interpret the policy as it's written. And um, the court rejected that argument saying that it's not, it was not an ambiguous term. And although it did leave open the door, it talked about other cases where contamination um, by like carbon monoxide or certain things have been have constituted property damage or direct physical loss. And so it did leave that door open um, that if perhaps there had been, um, you know, the rampant cases of COVID within that restaurant, you know, that could have that could lay the groundwork for 
a physical a direct physical loss but because that's not what we had here the court moved on from that jennifer i, I imagine like these other policies what you see when you're looking at property policies for whether whether it's it's covid coverage or otherwise is it's such yeah. a literal reading of the language of the policy and so when yeah. it's talking about this physical loss I, I would imagine a situation could be different if covid was actually discovered on the property at the property if they swabbed it and found it there that's different than saying the property was shut down or even different than saying somebody at the property was sick they're really looking yeah. to see if there's physical changes fomite was the word that was sort of hot and thrown about meaning you know something that actually lands on the physical structure of these facilities and then changes in some way do you think if if covid was discovered to have modified or altered the physical structure of a building or was physically present could could that be enough of a potential angle that people would hook into for coverage under these policies or do you think covid and then government orders being shut down to prevent people from going in is going to always preclude the possibility for coverage in a in a property policy I, I think it's I think it's a possibility. Um, I mean, I think that there have if you know again, looking at cases that looked about other kinds of like infiltration where like a boiler didn't work and the and there was car a carbon monoxide leak and the property itself was the same as it had always been, but there was an element introduced to it that made it not usable. I do think that's that could open the door again whether. COVID can be equated with, say, a carbon monoxide leak. It's it's not quite clear, but I do think that that would present a different question for the court and, and kind of a more a closer call for the court than than what we have here. Yeah, I think in those cases you might have a better argument for coverage. I think ultimately with COVID, causation is going to be a huge problem to ever establish. How do you prove where yeah. the person got it when it's something like COVID? Um, but I think there's an opportunity, you know, down the road where maybe science evolves and, and experts are able to say this is where they got it from with a definitive amount of proof to, you know, to, a, to a reasonable degree of, of scientific certainty. So um, I, I want to be mindful of everyone's time. We're coming up on, on the hour. We're there now. Um, a couple yeah. of quick takeaways that I got from the presentation is I think uh, the devil's in the details for all these policies. The language is the precision of it really matters, but both ways. There are arguments that when the language isn't as precise as you'd like, where you can push back to try and push that carrier to take a different position. So the language is just so critical in policies. Um, when in doubt, I think you want to report. I know that it's factually determinative and specific. I know there's the concern about does it, does it, does it raise your rates and create a loss history? It might, but I'd, I'd rather err on the side of having put in the claim and protect myself that way and make sure my client has coverage. Um, and so my, I guess my third point is tying into that, which is I think you've got multiple policies, make sure you are uh, reporting on where, where there might be coverage. If it's a property damage claim, there's never gonna be coverage under a worker's comp policy. So I don't think any of us would suggest you just blanket all policies with notice, uh, but I do think you wanna be mindful of that. So just in, in summation and wrapping up, um, if the panelists could just give a couple of uh, practice pointers or areas where they think you wanna be particularly careful of for junior practitioners and as they're starting the process of walking through these policies to advise clients. Jenna, are there certain areas where you think people just want to be really aware of and, and pay closer attention to as they're going through? Well, I just, I would echo what, what everyone has said is that you really need to read the whole policy because every insurance policy is basically a series of provisions that give coverage, take it away. There are, there are exceptions to exclusion so there may be something that's excluded but under very specific circumstances the coverage is added back in so i would just say that the absolute key thing is that you need to read the entire policy from front to back even if it looks like an endorsement might not apply to your case you just need to it's really important to read the whole policy michelle what do you think any any things we want to really watch for as we're going through these policies um, sure. I think just when you had mentioned, you know, some practice points for, for some young practitioners, I think even more so than certain other types of, uh, of law, it's so important to watch out for jurisdictional differences when you're looking at the interpretation of policies. Um, we have mentioned, you know, kind of physical loss or damage, that type of, of phraseology that's used in the insurance policies. And that, you know, it can, it can differ from state to state and even within state jurisdictions. 
Um, so I think that would be, aside from what we've already said, one of the things to definitely, just because you found that great case that helps you so much, you know, kind of if you're looking at a multi-jurisdictional briefing situation, be, be aware that it might be completely different just the next state over. Sorry about that, I was muted. John, uh, thanks, Michelle, and thanks, Jennifer. John, any closing thoughts uh, for practice pointers that we haven't yeah. covered that you wanna emphasize? In the context of professional liability policies, you know, and I, and I don't want to sort of say the same thing over and over again, but uh, I would I really encourage people to read their policy very carefully. These policies tend to be less standardized than either property or general liability policies. They, each carrier tends to have their own form. They'll define things slightly differently. Um, you really need to read the insuring agreements and some of the definitions to see what the reporting requirements are and make sure that you comply with them. Um, so that would be my, my suggestion. That's, that's the key part to making sure that you protect any coverage that might otherwise be available. That's great. Uh, what I would say is read the cases. I mean, there, it's a finite body of law. You, you may seem overwhelming. I think the good news is as you do more of these, you realize a lot of these policies are formulaic and the way you read them, the language is gonna be similar. So as overwhelming as it may seem now, you can get more familiar with it. And then I think you wanna dive into the cases and really wrap your head around it. Um, Jennifer pointed out a case earlier that, that one of the good observations I thought about that case. So if you find the right case, they'll really walk you through the way that a court would interpret these policies. That's ultimately what you're trying to do is argue in terms of a way that a court would adopt your position. Uh, along those lines, Jennifer, just before we end, one of the attendees had to ask for the name of the case we were, you were just discussing uh, against the agent and against the carrier. Uh, I think it was a, a superior court case. It's a superior court case and um, hold on one second, let's see. The um, it's uh, the docket number, and that's how I found it. I don't know if it's it's on Westlaw, but it's um, 2084-CV-01378. And it's a decision by Judge Sanders of Suffolk Superior. Great, well, thank you. Well, uh, thanks everyone that was here with us today. Thanks to the panelists. We're all available. If you have questions, you know where to track us down, uh, but we appreciate everyone joining today. Really good turnout. And as I said at the beginning, I'm looking forward to more of these once we're able to safely get together, but I appreciate everyone joining us today and I really appreciate all of the effort and insight from the panelists. So thank you everyone. Have a great day. Thanks everyone. Thank you. Yes, thank you to all of our speakers. I hope everyone has a great day and we look forward to seeing you at future programs. Have a great weekend. All right, you too. Thank you.